Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, ahead of the second anniversary of the deadliest killing spree in modern Canadian history, where 22 people were killed by a lone gunman over 13 hours in Nova Scotia, we speak to the author of a new book called 22 Murders, investigating the massacres, cover-up, and obstacles to justice. We find out the devastating impact the war in Ukraine is having on the most vulnerable in the Middle East and North Africa heavily reliant on exports of such things as wheat from Ukraine and Russia. But first, the world's richest man turns his sights on Twitter. Elon Musk stuns the finance and tech communities with a hostile takeover bid of the social media platform worth more than $43 billion US. Can he get the money together? Will shareholders be happy? How will the Twitter board respond? And what would the social media platform look like if he indeed succeeds? We start now, though, with news that hit the financial world and the tech world like a lightning bolt today. Billionaire Elon Musk, one of the richest men in the world, perhaps the richest man in the world, now says he wants to buy Twitter outright, taking it private to restore its commitment to what he terms free speech. It's been an on-again, off-again relationship between Musk and Twitter. He announced this on Twitter. Uh, It's a hostile bid to buy up the whole company for more than $43 billion US. In a regulatory filing, Twitter revealed that Musk has offered to buy up all outstanding shares in the company. Where was Elon Musk today? He happened to be in Vancouver, believe it or not. He was speaking at the TED conference there on Thursday. He said his motivations are not financial, but he has a desire to preserve the, quote, public square that Twitter has become. Appearing at the 2022 TED conference in Vancouver, Elon Musk offered some skepticism that he'll have success in buying Twitter, the company saying it is reviewing his offer. But Musk, who has long been at odds with Twitter but is also a big user of it, gave some insight into his frequent use of the platform. Literally, you know, on the toilet or something, I'm like, oh, this is funny, and then tweet that out, you know. If he does buy Twitter, Musk says he wants to open it up to more free speech, he wants to eliminate spam bots, and he wants to give users the option to edit tweets. Alex Stone, EBC News. So, can he get the money together? Will shareholders be happy? How will the Twitter board respond? And what would the social platform look like if he succeeds? Joining me now with more on that is Dan Ives. He's Managing Director and Senior Equity Research Analyst covering the tech sector at Wedbush Securities in New York. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Great to be here. So, I mean, I woke up and looked at this and thought, oh my gosh, how much did it catch everyone off guard, this Elon Musk uh, hostile takeover bid? I mean, Musk being a corporate raider for Twitter in 2022 was definitely not on the uh, crystal ball of, uh, I think, anyone. And look, I think it speaks to, with Elon Musk, the, he goes to the beat of a different drum. But here with Twitter, this went from a friendly situation where he was going to come on the board eating cheese and crackers and everything was going to be fine to what's really become a hostile Game of Thrones situation where going back to 1980s style, he becomes a corporate raider for Twitter. And we ultimately believe when the soap opera is over, he ends up owning it. So this is serious. This is deadly serious. Yeah. And I think right now the street, because it's Musk, there'll be questions of, are these antics? Is this a sideshow? Can he get the financing? So, you know, I think many on the street are skeptical, but this is a real bid. We believe will be financed 15, 20 billion of debt. And it's really going to put Twitter's board and execs feet to the fire because if they reject the bid, 
They got to do a strategic process as a fiduciary. So I believe the Twitter story, the Twitter management team and, and almost corporate history to what we know, I think clock struck midnight once Musk put the bid in. Why does Elon Musk want to buy Twitter? That remains a big question. And we could say freedom of speech is definitely the driver. Musk is a queer freedom of speech advocate. And I do think this has become, it's crossed the chasm. It went from, okay, he's going to own 9%, become number one holder, try to drive the strategy. I think once he behind the scenes, he started talking to the board, talking to the management team, realizing they weren't seeing eye to eye. Musk felt like he wants to take the Twitter platform and really change social media. And look, for someone that's done it with SpaceX, with Tesla, which obviously it's hard to argue with his golden success. Twitter is a whole nother animal, but I think this has really become more than a project. It's really become a, a key strategic initiative, which is why Musk is going to put you know, tens of billions of his own money behind it. Musk has used Twitter very effectively to build his own brand over the years. What kind of impact does someone like Elon Musk taking over a platform like Twitter have potentially? Yeah, I mean, Musk, 80 million followers, his global reach won't be what it is today without Twitter. It's almost been symbiotic, you know, with Twitter over the last decade. And I think right now within Twitter headquarters for investors, and there's a lot more questions and answers in terms of, you know, how that would change the platform. I could tell you one thing within Twitter headquarters, there's a lot of employees probably figuring out what font to use on the resume today because they're not going to work for Elon Musk. It would be a different type of environment. It wouldn't be golden retrievers and playing ping pong at 12 o'clock for lunch at Twitter. It would be different. And I think Twitter's been underperforming asset, frustration of investors. But look, they never thought in almost a Godfather, Mar and Brando-like story that you know Musk would be sitting in the CEO chair at Twitter. But Dan, even when when Elon Musk bought up that initial chunk of stock recently, he started talking about making changes. Changes were coming. Uh, what kind of impact could it could it have on Twitter if he in fact takes over the whole place? It could have a massive ripple effect. You know, in terms of the platform, in terms of what it would mean for the strategy, and it would be a different place to work. And I think for Musk now. It's a real bid. The question is going to be Twitter with their next move. They'll clearly reject the initial offer. That'll be the first step. And then this becomes a get out the popcorn moment because there's going to be many twists and turns ahead in the soap opera. I imagine one of the uh, one part of this drama will be the regulatory aspect. He's fought with the SEC over his Twitter posts. Uh, what sort of roadblocks could uh, could regulators throw up here? I mean, look, there could be a host of regulatory roadblocks. You know, I think within the Beltway, as well as Brussels, this is going to cause a lot of alcohol. It would really cause a firestorm, right? I mean, to some, they'll cheer it. Because, look, Musk is viewed in some circles as a hero and others as a villain, right? It makes him more and more divisive, hot button area. You'll see a lot of regulatory pushback. And, th- and that's why I think Twitter's board, it's, it's really a fork in the road here because how they navigate this 
is going to be, you know, very focused on in terms of their next steps. Could there be another bidder? Look, I think at this price, that'll be very difficult. Because they do have a fiduciary duty though here. So if the bid is great. They can't really reject it just out of principle, can they? They can't just go under the cover, shut the lights off like this never happened. They're fiduciaries at the public company. So they might not like Musk. It might be their nightmare that Musk ultimately owns Twitter, but they got to do their fiduciary responsibilities, which is why right now within Twitter, it's back to the whiteboard, what their strategy is going forward. When the richest person, many would say the most fouled in the world is now looking to buy Twitter. What now, Dan, what happens now? So next step will be the boilerplate rejection from Twitter. They've looked at the bid. They think it doesn't value the company. It starts the back and forth negotiation. Behind the scenes, they'll have to do a strategic process, see if there's any other bidders. We'll call it a 30-day process. Musk will retort. And then this, this ultimately goes a few ways. It becomes more hostile, 1980s corporate takeover style. Ultimately, there's no other bidders. They have to accept a bid or other consortium or bidders come in, or Musk has to push up his price. And I think now for the street, he has to show that the financing, I think collateral of, of Tesla and SpaceX shares will be key. Is there another consortium? Does he team up with private equity? And that's why this, this it's become a twilight zone. But again, it's 2022. Anything could happen. And you know, must be in a corporate raider for Twitter uh, clearly is uh, one of the more bizarre things, at least I've seen my 25 years. Last word to you, Dan, good or bad day for Twitter? Well, it's a good day for Twitter investors. It's a nightmare day if you're a board member or an exec, because at this point, I think days are numbered. Dan Ives, thank you so much for your insight. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. We're looking into uh, Elon Musk's decision today that he announced on Twitter that he wants to buy all of Twitter. Came as a real surprise to just about everyone. We think $43 billion is the offer. He says it's not about the money. It's about preserving Twitter as a public square. He has had fights with Twitter in the past. He's gotten into trouble for some of the tweets that he's uh, put out there. Uh, He took aim at the Canadian government last year during the trucker blockade. Uh, That got him into a bit of trouble as well. Joining me now is Elizabeth Dubois. She's an associate professor in the Department of Communication and a member of the Center for Law, Technology and Society at the University of Ottawa. We're going to talk about uh, what kind of challenges Elon Musk might have in taking over Twitter. Will he make it a better place? Uh, Elizabeth Dubois, thank you for your time tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I guess the question I've been asking is just your initial reaction to this news. Yeah, it was uh, quite the surprise to wake up to. Uh, You know, on one hand, it's a surprise to have, you know, one very wealthy person offer to take over an entire company that really serves as a core communication tool for many people is is shocking. On the other hand, Elon Musk has uh, been very vocal about his views of what Twitter should be and could be and uh, is, you know, putting his his money where the the kind of mouth is. I was going to ask the important the importance of Twitter um, overall because we know that as a in terms of a shareholder company it hasn't done uh, fantastically. It's not one of the big uh, social media companies that say you know Congress is paying a lot of attention to, but it does occupy a very important position uh, for who it serves, does it not? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Twitter is, no, it's not kind of like the massive ones that everybody goes to, but the communities that Twitter is used by are really invested in the platform, make a lot of use of it. Twitter has been extremely useful for a lot of different groups organizing. Uh, A lot of niche communities come together on Twitter. There's a lot of political information sharing that happens on Twitter. It's a place where a lot of journalists interact with each other, interact with politicians and sources. And that leads into a much wider news system. So even those of us who aren't on Twitter every day are still being impacted by Twitter without necessarily even knowing it. I would imagine therein lies the attraction for Elon Musk, not as a financial investment, but as you know, a bit like taking a bit like taking over a big newspaper back in the day. Yeah, the the potential power of whoever owns these companies, both in terms of you know owning the newspaper type situation where like you are going to be uh, prioritizing information and controlling what kinds of relationships exist between different political actors to a certain degree. That's, that's a huge attraction there. There's also kind of this level of just general interaction in the kind of tech regulation space that I think is part of this. The idea of how we deal with content moderation and how we deal with what information should and shouldn't flow in online spaces is a huge regulatory issue right now. And getting in via Twitter, even though Twitter is not the biggest player, is still uh, a way to enter those conversations uh, pretty drastically. When you look at Elon Musk's previous comments about free speech, about how he sees what Twitter should be, is that something that, that raises alarm bells? Or do you think it's something that raises perhaps an improvement to the platform? You know, I, I see alarm bells and I see alarm bells for two reasons. One reason is I think the way Elon Musk has articulated a view of what free speech is, is really problematic. When we think about the Canadian context of freedom of expression, it is always balanced against other rights that we have as citizens and, and inhabitants here and being able to exist in free from hate speech is a really crucial thing for us. And so I think the way Elon Musk has articulated that idea of freedom uh, is potentially problematic because it ignores a lot of hate that does happen on Twitter even now. And then the other level that it kind of concerns me on is boiling this all down to being about free speech. And I don't think at the end of the day, it's simply about freedom of speech. I think these platforms, whether they're owned by Elon Musk, some other very wealthy individual or a company with pu- that's publicly traded, you know, they are making a lot of choices about our information environment. They are controlling the flow of information regardless. And so I think framing it as a free speech thing is risky. Elon Musk, though, when I mean, considering you're at the Center for Law, Technology and Society, it's hard to think of a figure in the world right now who seems to intersect all those things more in a more dominant way than Elon Musk, whether it be Tesla or SpaceX. Uh, Is there a possibility here that that he may bring something to Twitter uh, that we just don't expect and it may not be bad uh, from where you sit? You know, it's it's really hard to know because there's so little offered right now in terms of plans beyond I want free speech and I want my version of free speech, right? And so feasibly, sure, there could be something interesting that's brought to the table, but we haven't seen much evidence of that or much even kind of suggestion of what that would look like. So 
yeah, at this point, it's hard to imagine, but certainly we do see lots of innovation when you bring in lots of different perspectives and different experiences and pulling from different industries into the social media world uh, could offer benefits. We just haven't seen them outlined very well at all. That is Elizabeth Dubois, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication and member for the Center for Law, Technology and Society at the University of Ottawa. Well, early next week will mark a grim anniversary in this country. It's been nearly two years now. It will be two years on Monday, Tuesday, since the deadliest killing spree in Canadian history took place in Nova Scotia over the course of 13 hours. On April 18th and 19th, 2020, a lone gunman shot and killed 22 people in 16 different locations. We now know the gunman, of course, was dressed in a police uniform, drove a replica police vehicle for much of those 13 hours. But to this day, families of the victims continue to ask why the RCMP did not provide the kind of information they say could have better protected the community from a killer on the loose. There is a public inquiry underway now in Halifax, which is also facing some criticism as it unfolds. In the midst of all of this, and right ahead of that two-year anniversary, comes a new book on those horrific 13 hours nearly two years ago now. Joining me now is investigative journalist and author Paul Polango. His book is called 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia, an expose of the deadliest killing spree in Canadian history. Uh, Paul Polango, thank you for your time tonight. Glad to be here. I've been trying to brush up on what's happened in this inquiry that's now underway into this horrific incident, trying to figure out what's been uncovered, what we now know that we didn't know. And it is painfully difficult, even today, to try to get a clear picture of what went so terribly wrong that night. Well, you're not the only one. And from the beginning, when I started doing this two years ago, I mean, it's two years Monday, this Monday that it happened. Um, I looked at what was happening and unfolding, and I recognized, even though I'm a retired journalist and an active glass artist at Chester Basin, Nova Scotia, uh, I'm still sentient. And I, I recognize that I've seen this pattern before, and this is what they're going to do. They're going to deny, 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 say that the RCMP did heroic things, box out the media, make the story disappear from, uh, uh, newspapers and television shows. And then once they're forced to have an inquiry, have a muddled inquiry where they just throw documents out, let everyone have a feeding frenzy, but everyone will pick a different thing. So there's no cohesive narrative about what happened. Meanwhile, they'll interject at key moments with heroic stories of what the RCMP did or, or tragic stories that had happened to the RCMP. And everyone will be confused about why are we having this hearing? So that's why I wrote the book early in the cycle, because I recognize they're going to do this. There needs to be a cohesive narrative to show what's really going on. And I'd hope to land it somewhere, you know, around now, where when I expected some of many of the hearings to be held and they're about to do an interim report. But instead of me dovetailing with them, they delayed for four or five months, and they dovetailed with me. So now the hearings are going on just as the book is coming out. I suspect that's the worst nightmare because I have a, a cohesive alternative narrative that shows what the story is. Paul, 
you said in a previous interview that when you started out, you may have known about 60% of the story and you figured by the time the book was released, you may know about 90%. What have you found out since? What do we know? What do you now know that we did not well, know back then? When I, when I got the book contract in, I guess, November, December, 2020, I had written the most horrible book proposal you could ever see. It was like snippets of ideas. And uh, Craig Payette from Random House said, I like where you're going. How much of the story you know? I said, 60%. How much you, I said, how much you're going to have by the time you get there? 90%. And what I learned in that interim was all kinds of things. Like we uncovered documents showing that the RCMP was destroying evidence in the case. Published it in Frank Magazine, which was the only magazine that would publish it. And it was totally ignored by the mainstream media. And we eventually uncovered 911 tapes, which refuted the RCMP story that they didn't know that shooter Gabriel Wortman was dressed as a policeman driving a replica police car until the next morning when his girlfriend came out of the woods. And the 911 tape showed uh, the first three callers said it's Gabriel Wortman dressed as a policeman driving a police car. And he's the guy doing it. So, you know, we took that away from them. We uncovered tapes um, in the strangest story. Um, I One of the first stories I wrote in Frank was picked up by a podcast host, uh, Jordan Bonaparte, who does the nighttime podcast. And we talked about the story about this new timeline I established for what happened. And some a woman listening in Orangeville, Ontario, um, said, I remember something from nine months ago. I heard these policemen in the woods and they were lost. And they found a body. And I said, where did you hear that? She said, on a police scanner app. And then we eventually tracked down the archives for that tape and found out what they were doing at night. And the, the RCMP had never released any of this stuff. And then eventually we found, uh, through sources, we found the videotapes of the shooting of uh, Gabriel Wortman at the Irving Big Stop on April 19th, which again refuted the official police watchdog report saying that it was a clean shoot and this is what happened. And we can show with the tapes, that's not what happened. In fact, he left out entire segments in his report. So, you know, along with other interviews, we're able to develop a story showing that everyone is lying and that there's a cover-up. There's obviously a cover-up. And the commission that was appointed to do it was first appointed to do a review, which is a documentary review with no witnesses called, no cross-examination or nothing. They were forced to call an inquiry. They sat around for over a year, finally started the inquiry, and all they're doing is providing documents pretty well and no real cross-examination. So it's, a, it's an, a, an inquiry, a review disguised as an inquiry. So much of what the rest of us understood about what unfolded that night, the things that I remember distinctly about that is his ability to move around without anyone stopping him. Um, the lack of communication, the families have talked about this repeatedly, that they were not given the information that they needed to protect themselves from a gunman on the loose. Are those things all still exactly true? Oh, they're true. I mean, last week I reported uh, again in documents that I obtained that under the Canada Labor Code, the, the RCMP was cited for 18 violations for that weekend, including communications, uh, not uh, arming their, their and, and supervising their staff very well. 
Uh, for example, after the shootings of Mounties in Spiritwood in 2006, Saskatchewan, and in 2005, four Mounties in Marathorpe, and three in Moncton in 2014, they were under labor code uh, orders to uh, provide members with night vision goggles. Never done. They never did it. So when they got to Portapic, they're operating in the dark. They didn't have any of the equipment they needed. Their communication systems were ratty. Their supervision was incredible. They had essentially minor uh, officers. They had a traffic staff sergeant as the incident commander. Now, this is the RCMP story in a nutshell. So everything that's happened has been designed to cover up this incompetence, obvious incompetence, and um, embarrassing sort of supervision. But the RCMP... And it's it's enablers in government continue to say, uh, you know, as 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 the RCMP union person said in the Globe Mail the other day, our response was textbook. And you look at it, everyone like there's why would the Globe and Mail write a story quoting a person who's self-interested saying that the operation, the, the response was textbook when 13 people were killed, probably five or six of them while the RCMP rap port a pick. And then Wortman got away the next day and killed nine more people. It was never stopped until he accidentally ran into a Mountie after driving 200 kilometers. But this is what the RCMP wants the public to believe was textbook. Yeah. Paul, I, I was in these cases I, and I've covered cases like this before. I always like to, to you know, to remind that, the, you know, the RCMP weren't pulling the trigger here. You know, there was a gunman at, in all this who who's is responsible for this at the end of the day. Uh, but when you looked at what happened that night, were the officers sent out to try to stop this simply not given an opportunity, not properly sent out with the right tools and the right capacity, the right guidance to actually try to, to try to try to stop them? It was a difficult situation, but it's quite clear listening to the tapes, and this is the Canada labor code violations that the supervision was horrendous. You know, at one point they made the fundamental, you know, the first rule of policing in a critical incident is preservation of life. Same with prison guards, whatever. All law enforcement officers operate by the principle of preservation of life. In this matter, not only did the RCMP not preserve one life, but they made assumptions that caused lives to be lost. For example, in the middle of the night, uh, according to the records, the an officer heard a gunshot at Portapec and their assumption was, Oh, he just killed himself. So you know what they did? They went home six 30 in the morning. Places are burning. They wouldn't allow the fire departments in. They had no idea how many were dead. They thought there were only five, only five. So they went home. Bodies were still lying on the road. They weren't tart. They weren't, cordoned off, nothing. People were driving through the scene and there were bodies on the road at 9.30 in the morning. They went home and then Wortman comes back alive after having a little nap and starts killing people again. So you tell me, you can say all you want about, you know, the RCMP defenders, they didn't pull the trigger, but their job was to preserve life. And they did nothing right in this. You know, they could say, the union could say it was a textbook response I think the people would see otherwise. I'm speaking with Paul Polango. His new book is called 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia, an expose 
of the deadliest killing spree in Canadian history. After this, we'll talk more about where this inquiry may go. The families are clearly still looking for answers. What are they saying? What are they hoping for? Will they get it? That's next. I'm back with investigative journalist and author Paul Polango. We're talking about his new book, 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. It is an expose of the deadliest killing spree in Canadian history. Paul, you've spoken to the families. Uh, I remember a lot of the coverage from the months after this all unfolded, how frustrated they were, how much they fought for an inquiry. How are they feeling now? They're all feeling pretty well bruised and battered by all this. Because you'll remember from the beginning, you know, you probably wouldn't remember this. It was long ago. Um, Justin Trudeau on his first or second comment about this says, uh, we uh, shouldn't name the shooter. We don't want to enhance his infamy, et cetera, et cetera. So the media took that, that and ran with it. Never named him, never named anyone. Uh, the RCMP was able to hide behind this and the notion that everything that the the RCMP did, the inquiry would do and would be trauma informed. Therefore, we're not going to upset anyone. Everything's going to be coddled. We're going to use restorative justice principles. And I warned from the beginning, this is all going to be used as a shield for the police to hide behind, not testify. And eventually that came true. A couple of weeks ago, you might recall the RCMP union went before the commission to ha- have all RCMP officers exempted from testifying at the MCC because it would be too traumatic for them. You know, 70 Mounties, 70 took the summer off in 2020 because they were stressed out. 70. There wasn't that many involved in a spotted workman or, or whatever. So this was a, no, this is a black bark against the RCMP. And now what has happened at the commission, families are upset. The lawyers themselves are, are saying negative things. I mean, yesterday, uh, Josh Bryson, one of the lawyers representing uh, the Bond family, got up and said, this is not transparent. This is not an inquiry. He scolded them. A couple of days ago, Daryl Curry, who is the assistant uh, deputy police chief at Onslow Belmont Fire Hall, where it, which was notoriously shot up by the Mounties, uh, took a strip off of the, the commission saying, this is a cover-up. Wearing his uniform, he says, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You know, like, this is how, how it's at the point it's at. Paul, is, is it entirely naive to think that when something this horrific happens, regardless of how unique the circumstances may have been that particular night, you know, the combination of all the things that happened, the police car, the police uniform, the lack of proper communication equipment, all of it, all of it, the perfect storm to turn into this absolute tragedy. Is it really naive to think people wouldn't want to learn from this so that it would never happen again? Yeah, I mean, you want people to learn from this, but one of the problems in Canada in dealing with the RCMP, and I experienced this out in BC and Vancouver back in 2008, 2009, that As problematic as the force has been and continues to be, many people don't want to hear it. They say, oh, we love our Mounties. They're a national symbol. Um, You know, they made a mistake. Get on, move on. Well, they can't get away with that. I mean, when I was out there in 2008, I talked about the problems that existed in Surrey and with staffing and things like that. Well, I was yelled at and belittled by the RCMP. Well, look what's happened since then. 
you know, Surrey decided they got to take over their own policing. It's not, it didn't just happen accidentally. There are problems. The, R- the other problem that the government is defending against is the RCMP, by its own admission, at, at an accounts committee in Ottawa the other day, they admitted that recruitment is down 50%. Now, the, of the number of people who want to become Mounties, a third of them drop out. So they can't, they can't do what they're supposed to do. They're, they're, the force in its current model with contract policing is unsustainable. But nobody at the political level wants to deal with it. And this, is, this whole incident now in Nova Scotia has forced their hands because something's going to have to be done. I've been warning about this for over four books, pointing out the flaws in the organization and that it's, a, you know, I've said in the past, it's a danger to itself, to its members and to the public, the way it is construed now. Paul Polango, thank you so much for sharing more about the book. Um, I certainly hope that people read it and people get the message. Well, thank you very much for having me. Call me anytime. Well, all eyes these days have certainly been on the war in Ukraine. It is cemented in global headlines, but the prospect of an acute food crisis unfolding in the Middle East and North Africa is likely to have pretty profound political and security implications for the region. What is the current situation there? And what kind of risk is there for political turmoil and humanitarian disaster? Joining me now is Muzna Shihabi. She's the regional communications advisor for the Middle East and North Africa at CARE. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. So we read, I think, very on, early on in this conflict in Ukraine, that there would be a tremendous impact, specifically on food security in the Middle East and North Africa. We're more than 45 days in now. What has been the impact on that region? Well, actually, we felt the impact um, during the first three weeks. Um, in many uh, areas which are already impacted by conflicts. Uh, Many countries like Lebanon, like Syria, Yemen. um, And uh, for example, just yesterday, um, people in Lebanon uh, told us that bakeries are closing down, uh, there is no wheat, and um, there will be a UN actually uh, report coming out very soon with uh, very staggering data. Uh, about this matter. So yes, definitely this is impacting the MENA region, which is already plagued with (laughs) famine, you know, like Yemen, for example, since 2016. And Yemen faces already, you know, very disturbing trends um, of people being a threat of famine. And currently in Yemen, uh, there are more than 2 million children that go to bed hungry every day. So it's telling how, uh, you know, the situation was already uh, very bad. And uh, the war uh, Ukraine, of course, came to uh, make things even worse for people, especially that we import most of the wheat. 50% of the wheat comes from uh, Ukraine and Russia in the Middle East. I was surprised, uh, Muzda, to read that Lebanon itself depends on, for wheat, 66% comes from Ukraine, 12% from Russia. So 78% of its vital supply of wheat comes from that specific region. Uh, what has been, you mentioned it briefly about, about bakeries in Lebanon, but where are we seeing, where are we seeing the impact of these shortages? Because I understand it, it, it extends to sunflower oil, which is important. It extends to wheat, obviously, to other grains, uh, fertilizer. There's a huge impact. 
Absolutely. I mean, Lebanon yesterday, if you were in Beirut yesterday, people who, who are queuing in front of the bakeries. And uh, since the beginning of the crisis, you know, really from the first days, um, the bakeries in Lebanon were rationalizing bread and they only give one bag a person. Mm. Uh, and not only this, I mean, uh, the prices went up because actually oil prices also went up. I mean, petrol prices went up. And when you talk about petrol prices, it means also the transportation of any food, of any products. Uh, and uh, for example, um, the, the the minimum wage in Lebanon now is 600,000 uh, Lebanese pound. And the meat, one kilo of meat is 300,000 pounds. So, so half, imagine, your, half your salary, half your salary, ha half your salary for one kilo of meat. So um, imagine how it looks like now. One of the things that I, that I is, is what can be, I mean, clearly the vulnerable here are even worse off. And I remember seeing a quote once that if, if people in the Middle East and North Africa are suffering, if you think of sort of Syrian refugees, for instance, if you think they're having trouble keeping their head above water, those who are most vulnerable are already well below that and in deep trouble, deep trouble and danger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right before the war in Ukraine, uh, we were commemorating the 11 years of the crisis in, in uh, Syria. And uh, if, if you talk about number of refugees, I mean, 12 million people were displaced so far. And, and more than 65% of the population is in need of humanitarian assistance, more than 65% of the Syrians, which means like if you like, as, as if you're talking about, I mean, uh, in, in Canada, you are around 38 million, it's like 25 million Canadians are in need of humanitarian assistance. And this is the situation right before the war in Ukraine. Where you know we 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 were just um, uh, having a, a new a new report actually uh, called Rapid Gender Assessment Report for the occasion for the eleven years of the Syria crisis, and you know I remember the Syrian woman telling us you know life is mentally and physically exhausting we can no longer go to hospitals because healthcare and medicines are so expensive, my children are not eating like before that we no longer. Uh, afford to have vegetables because they are very expensive. And this is before the war. I'm sure if I call this woman now, she will tell me we can't afford bread now, you know. So definitely the situation is really getting worse uh, each, each day. And, um, and people, you know, are telling us, you know, these scenes in, in, in Ukraine are really something we know, we, we relate to because we know what it means. You know, I'm talking about Syrians and, and, and Yemenis and, you know, people who are in conflict in our area. So violence is, is part of people's daily lives for decades now in these countries. And, you know, add on top of it the economic crisis, on top of it the COVID, and now the, the war in Ukraine. So, uh, yeah, this is really impacting on all levels, not only food, but, you know, ec economically also. I did read that even before the wars, this goes back to February, that the cost of basic food basket items, the minimum food a family needs per month, had, was up 351% in Lebanon, 97% in Syria and Yemen, 81% in Yemen, rather. I mean, those are astronomical increases. What happens now? Is the, is the aid there to be able to make sure that this doesn't turn into a catastrophe uh, in the region? 
Yeah, actually, it's a very good question and very important one because we feel that, you know, we already had gaps in the humanitarian resources and the funding for Syria, for example, Yemen, Palestine was already lacking, you know, and and we anticipated it to decrease uh, this year. So, you know, the humanitarian needs continue to grow around the globe, as as you have seen uh, with the Ukraine crisis. And, and the, the, the aid is not uh, growing with it. So that's, that's definitely a problem that we continue to face. Uh, and, and the populations feel it because, you know, I mean, there are programs that are in place and then all of a sudden they don't find these programs anymore, like cash assistance, like, uh, um, you know, food. So th- th- this is really problematic. So what we would like to, um, to say is really to call on the people you know, uh, on all the uh, countries and governments and the donors, not to forget that there are ongoing uh, crises uh, in our region where vulnerable populations really continue to face uh, rising needs. Musta Shihabi, thank you so much for shedding some light on what's happening in the Middle East and North Africa right now. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben.